0: Welcome to the Innovate Podcast. I'm David Castro, an Ashoka Fellow and CEO of the Institute for Leadership, Education, Advancement, and Development. Innovate features dialogue with social entrepreneurs, visionaries, and leading scholars engaged in transformative thinking, action, and creative collaboration. Innovate is produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal. The program is underwritten by Arch Street Press, publisher for the creative, collaborative community. Find out more on the web at archstreetpress.org. Today is March 6, 2012, and I'm very pleased to have with us today Elisa Del Tufo. Elisa and I uh, share the pleasure of being Ashoka Fellows, and we'll talk more about the Ashoka Fellowship later in in our dialogue today. Um, I wanted to begin by just welcoming you, Elisa, and relating a little bit of your background. You have, I understand it, an undergraduate degree from Colgate in philosophy and religion. That is true. Which is so cool. i got to <laughs> tell you, I've always wished I had majored in philosophy and religion. I was an English major, so uh, that's, uh, I just, <laughs> it's amazing. And it shows, it really shows the power of an undergraduate degree on something uh, serious like that, how it can motivate you to do great things. And then having a master's in divinity from Union Theological Seminary. I have that right? That's right. Looking back on your career, you've been really a pioneer in addressing the problem of violence within families. Among the things that you've done, helping to start early in your career, a rape crisis center at St. Luke's. All of your work, really, a a tremendous amount of your professional work has focused on New York City. Right. Mm -hmm. And in 1983, the founder of Sanctuaries for Families, which uh, really was a landmark organization, is a landmark organization today, the first battered women's program to provide uh, help to women regardless of their income and also to provide non-residential services, the first to offer women legal aid services for their children, transitional housing and job training. And, and being a social entrepreneur myself, I can appreciate the, the incredible progress of taking that organization, I think, from a budget around $250,000 to over $7 million. So mm-hmm, yeah. really <laughs> amazing work. And then uh, you're also a, Re- a Revson fellow, mm-hmm. which is a, a very prestigious fellowship associated with Columbia University. And I believe that that fellowship seems to be critical in your career and helping you to really do some deep thinking about the policy background of family violence. And you can tell us more about this, but you are also coming out of that fellowship, producing a very important report behind closed doors. Do I have that right?
1: Yeah, you really did your homework, David.
0: And and that report really was a change-making report, uh, becoming a blueprint for change in the court system, in law enforcement, in housing and mental health services, and really led to a national movement about changing the way that we think about the interrelationship between domestic violence, and child abuse. Mm-hmm. And that also led uh, to you founding another organization, <laughs> You are um, <laughs> a, a founder of, of organizations, which is something also we share. And it's it's really a special feeling to give life to an organization. It is. But uh, Connect, Communities Coordinated Against Violence in New York City, and that is an organization founded in 1993. And Connect really has an interesting mission, to, to provide culturally affirming and community-focused services that are designed to improve the community's ability to respond to family violence. And I hope we'll talk a lot more about that. I know that organization has also grown tremendously with over 130 community partners and some organizational relationships that reach literally thousands of, of individuals. You're also the author of a book, "Domestic Violence for Beginners," right? It's part and, of
1: the beginner series. That's yeah. right.
0: <laughs> and I hope maybe we'll not my
1: favorite that. title, but
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, that's right. It is. It is sounds like a how-to. Yes, it's domestic violence for beginners of fighting domestic violence. Mm-hmm, right. And today, you're the founder of a very interesting organization, Threshold Collaborative, mm-hmm. which I do, do you, and you do run that from Vermont, not New York City. Do I have that right? I,
1: that's correct.
0: Okay. So you have, one thing you have done is moved from New York City. <laughs> I did. you talk a little bit about that. But as I understand it, Threshold has a national mission to right. really um, help people deepen their empathy and trust, and with the goal of building sustainable community-based change. So, um, this is just awesome for us to be able to uh, spend some time talking with you, and we'll talk more about you're also an Ashoka Fellow, which is a, a fellowship that recognizes and supports highly impactful social entrepreneurs around the world and you have you have definitely earned that title and I know that we both have a big belief in the power of stories Mm -hmm. and I really wanted to start our dialogue by giving you a chance to tell your personal story and and I'm really hoping that you can take as much as 10 minutes and also relate a little bit about the soul journey behind this work you know Mm -hmm. one thing I think uh, we recognize being in, th- in this together is that you know, externally, uh, once the work is done, it just seems like it had to happen. But it's not like that. There are many, many valleys and uh, places where you come up against hard resistance and and it- you need the soul fuel to work yeah. those moments. And I-, I hope you'll share how you experience some of that.
1: Yeah, it's really true, David. It's sort of hard sometimes to sort of keep yourself moving forward especially if you're doing something that is not um kind of in the uh mainstream yes <laughs> you know and and it sort of pushes at the way um things uh, might normally happen and um it can be somewhat uh lonely and uh, strange sometimes to be in that space but um we're probably both a little bit used to being in that space. Um, right. And it, it does often take, you know, not to be, you know, maudlin about it, but it does take a certain kind of inner resources to be able to kind of sustain that. Um, but, you know, thank you, first of all, what a great introduction, and uh, you, you, like I said, you really did do your homework, so it's, it's really lovely to kind of hear it all laid out like that, um, like yeah. a nice pearl necklace, um, yes. everything kind of <laughs> hanging together, it, make, it sounds like it makes so much sense, doesn't it? Um, but I, I guess, really, for me, I do have to kind of go back to uh, that philosophy and religion degree I got at Colgate, because um, it was both... You know, something that I had never expected I would do actually when I started college. I was, uh, I saw myself as a music major and uh, um, someone that was interested in veterinary medicine and uh, was going to do a double major in biology (laughs) and music. But I ended up taking some classes um, in Buddhist studies, actually, was my introduction to the philosophy and religion department at Colgate, which is a very strong department. And um, I quickly became completely hooked on the study of religions from other parts of the world, I think partly because I had been a very serious Catholic girl as uh, growing up and had become quite alienated from my faith, my own religion, and um, its kind of history in America as I became an older teenager, and then to sort of find another religious Uh, path that seemed really intriguing and something that was worth pursuing was really fabulous for me. And that kind of entered me on a very interesting path where I ended up spending about a year of my life living in different Asian countries. I lived Mm. for six months in Nepal, um, studying Tibetan Buddhism. Wow. And living in a very, very poor community with a family in a very tiny little mud brick house um, studying Tibetan as well. So I, I studied the language Tibetan and I lived, the, the town I lived in had a, a Buddhist monastery in it and I was able to um, develop quite a relationship with, uh, with the monastery there and was able to learn a lot and also meditate a lot during that time. And I was being kind of under the wing of a professor at Colgate at that time, who really saw me going into a PhD program in Tibetan studies. That was sort of his goal for me. And I went to Nepal sort of thinking that that would be something that I would sort of pursue uh, at least in learning Tibetan and kind of experiencing the culture. But what I discovered when I lived there was really that what was the most significant and important and meaningful to me was really living with the people in the country and seeing how they um, experienced like important events in their life and how they lived with one another and how their faith impacted the way they saw their life, saw their death, saw their, you know, the big sort of transitions in their life of, you know, birth or anniversaries and things like that. And I sort of began to refocus what I was interested in to really thinking about how do people find meaning in their life and how do they um, see changes and challenges and where, where do they kind of pull from to, 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 to live a good life, really, and to mm-hmm. live with one another in a good way. Tibetans are a pretty remarkable culture and people, so it was kind of a great way to get exposed to those sort of ideas. And So when I came back to the States, uh, I did go back to Asia again and lived in Sri Lanka um, again for six months studying the type of Buddhism that they practice there, which is called Theravada Buddhism. Um, But I really sort of thought that I was not going to be going into an academic tradition. I was going to be much more interested in something that was applied. And um, Union Theological Seminary offers a degree in psychology and religion and that's why i went there i went to Mm. sort of um think about how those two sort of facets of i mean in a way there are different ways of expressing um how people find meaning and how they understand the experiences that happen to them and how they deal with trauma and how they Um, relate to one another, and uh, there's a lot of similarity, really, between the study of psychology and the study of religion, Um,
0: Mm.
1: um, in particular, if you're not really pursuing it from, like, this is my religion, and I believe everything that the scripture says, you know, more kind of as a philosophical study of religion, and, um, you know, both were important to me. I felt like I was a person person of faith, but I was sort of really more interested in how religion impacted the way people lived their lives. Mm. So that's kind of how I cut my teeth in this world of, you know, thinking about meaning and thinking about how people interpret it. And it's not a far stretch to the stories that they tell about how those things relate in their own lives. Um, Also, another professor at Colgate who was involved in social ethics, and Mm. um, he was dead set on kind of turning the people in his class into sort of political beings, um, people who really saw themselves as having a role to play in the way our nation and our communities worked and whether they worked well or not. And it wasn't so much that he saw everyone becoming an elected political person, but that they were really involved in the, you know, in social Justice and in social work, and in ways of building alliances that would make our world a better place. So, I became both interested in how people interpret their lives and find meaning, and also how people do or don't become active in their communities to make them better places, how they relate to one another, either as allies. Or, or in a neutral way, or even as enemies, and how to sort of build alliances across those divisions so that people can work together in better ways to make, you know, their neighborhood, their home, their community a better place. So those two factors, you know, from when I was 20 years old have really ended up kind of being my engines for change for the last <laughs> 30 you know, 35 years. So it's um, interesting and amazing what those kind of s- sort of seminal experiences can, can do to you. <laughs> sometimes I curse myself <laughs> uh, for having those experiences. And sometimes, you know, I, I owe a great debt to those um, the, to those early experiences and those people that helped me kind of uh, um, formulate them and kind of move them along the, the road in, in ways that I think were kind of intellectually rigorous and um have you know made a huge difference in in the way i've worked in the world um so i i I was sort of asked i think by the social ethics professor as we all were in the class you know who is it that you feel that you can um who, who are your people who can you really have the biggest impact on and Um, I went to college in the 70s and the women's movement was really becoming a very, you know, sort of strong social movement. And I sort of came to the conclusion for myself that finding a place in that movement to sort of um, find equality and and liberation for women was was where I I felt most comfortable, but not just most comfortable. That I had the most to contribute because it was a reflection of my own experience and my own story. And my story and other women's stories were able to, we could relate to each other on that kind of fundamental level of our narrative um, and where we saw ourselves going and the struggles of family and earning money and um, career and, you know, all those issues that are uh, hard to weave together and figure out. Absolutely. Um, so that was sort of how I mo- kind of moved, um, into that world of, of working on, uh, women's issues and, um, in particular violence against women.
0: You know, the, the, uh, I'm, I want you to pick up there, but I want to ask a couple of questions because yeah. it's just very intriguing to me. Um, so the time that you were in uh, Tibet, would that have been in the 1970s? Mm-hmm. I was in Nepal in 1976. Interesting. See, and I think one of the things that is lost today is, uh, probably the very stark contrast between the New York of the 1970s and the culture that you would have experienced in Tibet. I mean, uh, unless you lived through that, which I did, I actually grew up in New York in that time frame. And it it probably is about the the height of violence in New York.
1: It was pretty intense Um, there.
0: Very intense, uh, very violent period in New York's history. There was a tremendous amount of street crime and and the culture was such a violent culture to grow up in. I remember uh, telling Someone that um, if you wanted to watch two movies about New York in the mm-hmm. '70s that would capture what it was like, one was the movie *Death Wish* with Charles Bronson. Do you <laughs> oh remember <my> that? <laughs> and the other was *The Taking of Pelham One Two 3. Do you remember the original movie? No, I don't. Think so I've this is that. like uh, they've just remade that movie recently. But um, and New York was a very violent culture in the yeah. '70s, and and I just wonder if you could comment. On the contrast uh, that you experienced, you know, what was it like uh, uh, in terms of the and did you experience that as a contrast? I'm just curious.
1: Yeah, tremendously. I mean, the interesting thing about, um, I think, a developing country um, and in those days, people referred to them as third world countries um, (laughs) was that really. And I, I think it's changed a lot, but in 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 at that time in history, that culture was still an intact culture. Right. Um, Nepal had never been colonized. Um, I mean, there have been influences, but and you know some of them violent, but not colonized like India had been colonized by the British. Um, so it still really had very deep and ancient connections to. The philosophical and religious and culinary and you know family ties the work people did um, I mean some of it is very negative in terms of there being a pretty strong uh, you know sort of caste system even if it's not called that um,
0: mm-hmm. where
1: people basically are they do what they, their parents did and their parents before and it's there's not a lot of there's not a lot of individual freedom um, and that's the sort of downside of having a very strong culture but on the other hand and people lived with almost nothing i mean i lived in this little house with um, one electric light they had an electric light bulb which had just been put in like the year before there was no running water there were no toilets there was one window um they we lived upstairs over uh the barnyard animals um the family were weavers, um, and so they made these beautiful carpets, which were sold in the bazaar. And they were, they were poor, but they weren't, you know, they weren't starving. You know, they were, they had enough money to, you know support themselves and eat enough um, and they lived in a, an extended family compound and they all took care of each other's little children and they all kind of gambled and drank and sang and danced at night you know it was, very, it was really it was like a movie really in some weird ways you know to sort of yeah. see this and to sort of experience it and be part of it in the little way that I could be part of it was was profound and then contrast to that um it's weird because all of my memories of new york at that time are i literally they're in black and white because it was was so stark and it was so severe there and in a way it got worse during the crack epidemic in the 80s yes in the the sense that uh, that really infiltrated families in a way um that was a little bit more corrosive i think than some of the street crime um but it was a very harsh place. I mean remember the garbage strike? I mean Oh my
0: god, yes, yes. The,
1: the school strike and the racial tensions and it was very deep and it's kind of amazing to to see how changed it is. Um Yeah. Uh but uh it was and and you know what is that all about? I mean to some extent it's about this sort of I think uh, reevaluation and disconnection from these very deep family, cultural, religious ties that kind of give people a sense of who they are and what they can do and what they can't do and what they should do and what they shouldn't do. And, you know, in this country, we would say, well, that's part of the American ideal, you know, is to be uh, more independent like that. But the the downside of it is that it leaves people feeling, I think, rootless and disconnected and, um, even like a general sense of, of politeness and civility, ha, you know, is changes when all of that goes. You know, and then on the other hand, you get the kind of other side of it, which is the the sort of sense that it's all about me. You know, get the kind of middle class, upper middle class, like it's, it's about me and my family and I can get whatever I want. And the sense of shared accountability and responsibility is even on, on that level is also really shifted, I think, in ways that a lot of us find disturbing.
0: Right, right. I think it's if, New York is a fascinating case because it's obviously a much, much safer place today yeah. than, than it was in the past. And I do think that some of that is cultural in the sense of uh, some Good cultural norms replacing some that, but had, had had severely eroded. Um, but I do think when you look across America, you still see so much of what was happening in the 70s in New York and different places. And and um, so you know, it, it seems to be an isolated shift. And and of course, we then also know that beneath the surface, there's still enormous problems of the kind that you've, you know, spent most yeah. of your career addressing. Yeah. I, I want to get back to that story uh, of what you did next and and how you did this. But the other comment I'd like to make, because it just strikes me, and we're here right now talking about it, but um, just how, you know, we live in a, in, a, in a world that it seems to me has ceased to value the kind of soul and in intellectual development that can have such a huge impact on people. And I think your story really illustrates that. And we unfortunately try to take our education system. Uh, to a place where it's so practical and oriented on yeah. well, what can you do right yeah. after you graduate, and I'm sure that when you were studying uh, ph- philosophy mm-hmm. and religion, there were a lot of people who said to you, "What are you ever going to do with this?" <laughs> you know? bet they did.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: You're over there in Tibet, and people yeah. are saying, "What what possible what hell are you doing? What possible relevance does Tibet have?" Yeah. And then you bring back all this uh, soul work and turn it into something extraordinary. And so let's hear about that now. I'd like to hear a little bit about the founding of the first organization that you founded, the Sanctuary. And tell us, if you can, I mean, the lens that I'd love for you to put on that is how you sort of took this insight about culture and the influence of people's belief systems and how you kind of wove that into the project that you did at Sanctuary.
1: Um, Well let's see um, <laughs> first of all I think for listeners today you know where the the world of uh, the, the world of services um, and the service delivery you know industry <laughs> right. is is um, just I, I don't know how many times as big as it was you know back in let's say 1980. It's probably five times as big as it was then, and certainly certain kinds of services, for example, services for victims of domestic violence, were did not exist. I mean, there was nothing, literally nothing. Right. And I think that's hard for people to really kind of get their minds around um, because it's it's so much more mainstreamed now, and there's so much more talk about it, and there's so much there's so many more resources for it. But in fact. Um, In, I think, 1978, the first rape intervention project and the first domestic violence agency was started in the United States, maybe 1976. Um, And there were, in New York City, um, in 1980, there were three or four domestic violence organizations but they were all run by the city of new york Ah. and they really kind of fell into the category of of like uh, a homeless program that was just kind of targeted for women and kids there weren't really any there wasn't anything unique or special about it except that uh they were kind of trying to do intakes for women that were you know, fleeing a, a violent relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but besides that, that was kind of it. So that really started to change in the late 70s. Um, but there were still incredible restrictions on what you could do because the funding streams were very boxed in by welfare laws. And mm-hmm. most all these programs in, in New York City, which is the place I know the best, were you had to be on public assistance in order to get any help. Um wow which really both reinforced a stereotype, you know, that everybody who, the only people that were, you know, battered women were people who were on welfare. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a lovely thing to perpetrate. But the other thing was that um, there were lots and lots of people who uh, were not ever going to be eligible for those services um, because they weren't, they were working or they had some sort of financial uh, backing. So part of, Sanctuary's whole mission, and and again, this comes back to me just talking to people, was I kept talking to people about how cruel and ridiculous and reactionary this was, but also how um, there needed to be, you know, something for uh, women who didn't fit into those categories. categories. So I started, I decided that was really true, and I used my... Masters of Divinity as a sort of platform to um, cajole, embarrass, convince, and uh, inspire religious, the religious community in New York City to provide resources for uh, victims of domestic violence. So Sanctuary really started as uh, an organization that got uh, apartments and housing and some money from uh, New York City's religious community
0: Fascinating. So um, yeah. the original, the initial investment was private from uh, religious institutions.
1: It, it was, but let me tell you, it was very, <laughs> it was very hard. Yeah. I think I spent three years of my life every Saturday and Sunday in some synagogue, mosque, or <laughs> church, trying to get you know chump change basically from people who, and you know, as with many social issues there are the religious leaders who are completely committed to social justice issues and they were overcommitted. You know, they were already feeding the hungry and sheltering the homeless. And, you know, so here I was asking for more from them and they did what they could, but there were other, uh, you know, religious organizations that completely denied, literally denied the fact that there were, that there was any domestic violence in their parish or in their faith Mm. that, you know, well, Catholics don't do this. Jews don't do this. Muslims don't do this. um, Right. Which is a very hard. It's it's very hard denial to penetrate. Um, Now, of course, again, stories are the way to to do that because you you find people who are brave enough to actually tell their story in person or tell their story through some other medium, uh, written or you know um, recorded and you begin to kind of erode that resistance. Um, but that was really, that took so, it took so long. And I don't, I mean, it's not a task that's completed, but right. it was very difficult back then. And then I finally did convince the city of New York to um, uh, cough up $236,000, I think it was, um, which was really the big the, you know, the way that we were kind of able to launch as something that was more than just, you know, a couple thousand here, a couple thousand there. And um, that then took Sanctuary to... Another level where we actually had some government support, which is, you know, kind of a good housekeeping seal of approval and gives other people confidence that you're doing something that is worth supporting. And and then, you know, I was in the right place at the right time and a convincing communicator and was able to um, convince funders to give many of the first Grants that were ever given to um, domestic violence services um, in New York City and in New York State, as a matter of fact. So Mm. I was that's one of the reasons why Sanctuary was able to grow, grow so fast because I was um, the right person at the right time.
0: Right. But, and you had late, but you had and late had laid the, the foundation ground. for yep. that. Exactly. Right. Exactly. I'm, I'm really interested in the way that you evolved the services in those early mm-hmm. days. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're starting in an environment in which I guess there's even difficulty getting people to recognize the mm-hmm. problem. Right. And then to just to talk, can you talk a little bit about how, because the services that are now provided are so comprehensive, mm-hmm. uh, seem to be so comprehensive. Mm-hmm. And yet, when you're building that, it's so you're going from something that a system that's providing nothing, mm-hmm. and then you're ending up with a system that's providing a fairly comprehensive set of services. Right. And I'd just love to hear a little bit about how you accomplished adding each layer.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, when you talk to women who are trying to be safe from violence, right. um, and, and this really plays out l- later in my history, the, the main thing they're concerned about are their kids. Right. And, um, and in fact, that's often why women will stay in violent relationships, because they feel like they can manage the violence and it's the best place for their kids to be but then it all often becomes the reason why they leave the relationship because they feel that the violence is beginning to have a really negative effect on their kids the sad thing is is that in that in the time it takes for them to make that sort of emotional transition a lot of damage can be done and so um, often when women who are mothers are ready to leave a violent home, there's often a lot of trauma that people have experienced. Um, So there's a lot to overcome. Um, You know, there's a lot to heal from. And one of the things that has been a, a sort of criticism and continues in some ways to be a criticism of the domestic violence movement is its reluctance to really address children in the movement. And I was um, not interested in doing that. And so a lot of what we did at Sanctuary at the beginning was really try to find ways of supporting children and giving them ways to understand what had happened and kind of overcome what had happened. Um, And that happened both with the families that came into our program for residential services, but we started a whole network of non-residential services right away because we realized that there were women that never were gonna come into shelter for all sorts of reasons, Hmm. Um, women who might come into shelter at some point but needed a lot of support and information before they did that and it just seems stupid and ridiculous to wait until someone needed to come into shelter and in fact there was space for them to come into shelter before you provided them with any assistance and again this really um was another reason that Sanctuary was very different than the other programs that existed because they only provided assistance or any kind of services to the families that were actually in their shelters. Mm-hmm. And we didn't only provide these services in our office, which was in Midtown Manhattan, but we provided them in uh, in churches and synagogues all over New York City.
0: So you used those faith relationships yeah, connections, to yeah. make partnerships.
1: Yeah. And right. so we were offering support groups and, and children's art therapy and play groups and things like that um, all over the five. Well, not so much Staten Island. I hate to admit it, but <laughs> right. you know how hard That's it is. It's a right just, away. <laughs> <laughs> but every place else. And we were using libraries. We were using churches and synagogues. We were using um, empty apartments in NYCHA housing. Um, mm. you know, we were kind of using any place we could find as a a sort of a place where women and their kids could come and be safe, even if it was only for two hours, you know, and get some support information and collegiality because, you know, the whole idea of a support group is really to connect women that feel that they're, or people that feel that they're isolated, alone and ashamed of what they're experiencing and connect them with other people who have had similar experiences so that they can support each other. Right. Um, And it's a great, it's a great way to help people. It's also very cost effective. Um, and it was something that we were able to do through a network of you know trained volunteers and social work students, etc, you know, in a lot of different places around New York City. So we really were able to in this bizarre way before anyone ever used this word sort of
0: scale right.
1: <laughs> our our work um, just by just just by thinking outside of shelter
0: and there's one outside of shelter there's there's something buried here which i'd like to see if we can surface because i think it it really ties into the theme of telling the story Mm -hmm. um and that is you know um as you and i've had the same experience in my work as you start to grapple with a problem in this case the problem of domestic violence you start to see that problem the way it's actually embedded and yes. no, no longer as just an isolated incident, but as part of something larger, an yep. organic whole. And then what you're doing is you're you're seeing the connection points that that lead to it, and then you start to branch out and try to really uh, manage the system that is producing this this problem. And you know, your ability to do that really depends on your ability to understand the story, mm-hmm. the, way, the way that this actually happens in the world. I know one of the critical elements of this, and there's a lot of different ways of talking about this. We could talk about it in terms of narrative and storytelling, and we could, uh, I think it's also described as systems thinking, systems mm-hmm. analysis. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think you're really rightly credited with doing is, is working along this major fault line in the policy work, which is the divide between child abuse services Mm -hmm. and and domestic violence services. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that, how Mm -hmm. you really changed the way people think about that division.
1: Yeah. Well, I had really started thinking about it pretty much in in starting sanctuary because of this, because of the way the women described their own experiences. But then there was a pretty amazing situation that happened in New York where a little girl named Lisa Steinberg was killed by her father, whose name was uh, Joel Steinberg. Um, and the mom's name was Hedda Nussbaum. I don't know if you remember this, um, David, but it was 1986. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it was the kind of story that was all over the headlines the day after the little girl was killed. Um, this was an affluent family that lived in the West Village in New York City. Joel was a an attorney. Um, Hedda Nussbaum had been in the publishing business. Uh, cute little girl, another little boy at home. Um, and this was a family that had sort of cycled in and out of being identified as a risky family by the schools, by child welfare, by the police, but no one had done anything really significant in in part because they were white. He was a lawyer and he was, you know, going to, he was going to keep everybody out of his family. So there were a lot of, you know, sort of reasons why this happened. But um, when, Hedda Nussbaum's picture appeared in the newspaper um, the day after the murder. I don't know if you remember what she looked like, but she looked like she'd been a female prize fighter for her entire life. She had had cauliflower ear. Her nose had probably been broken 15 times. Mm. She had scars all over her face. She didn't even look like a woman, really. She looked like a a man with long, curly hair. Um, And she was um, charged with Murder right alongside of Joel. They were both charged with first degree murder, I think, at first. Mm. And um, there was a small group of of us who had been involved in the domestic violence world who sort of galvanized a uh, a support uh, a legal support team for Us Baum and really dug into the case to try to find out what the backstory was. And and for me um, personally, became it it sort of launched my crusade as someone who really realized that it was time that someone think seriously about this connection between adult violence and child violence, because here was a situation where a child had clearly been killed because there was violence towards her mother Mm. as well. Mm. And, And it was clear also that Joel was the perpetrator of both, that he had beat and Hedda Nussbaum to a pulp and that he had killed his daughter the accusation against Hedda was not that she had actually killed her daughter but that she had stood by and allowed her daughter to be killed mm. so in the child welfare world that's called child endangerment or failure to protect or you know um right so um this the sort of short story is that I just dis- this segued with my Revson Fellowship and I spent the next academic year sort of researching how much people had, were talking about this overlap. Um, and there was a whole body of literature on child abuse. Of course, that was something that was 30 or 40 years old already. There was a burgeoning uh, set of you know research and writing about adult domestic violence, but there was literally not even a mention Of the fact that these two issues had some overlapping, uh, you know, connection with one another. Mm -hmm. And uh, so after I sort of found out that there was nothing to read,
0: (laughs) (laughs) no one to talk
1: to. And in fact, these two Uh, systems, you know, the child welfare system and the domestic violence system never even talked to one another, Um, it was clear that there was a huge need and opportunity to try to, you know, bring these two issues closer together to find out uh, what the connections were and what kinds of interventions might be more successful than the non-existent interventions that we had right now. Um, I started thinking that I was going to sort of become a little social scientist and do some sort of randomized control survey type of thing. And I, I, um, spent about six months, you know, reading about those and trying to develop the survey and talking to friends of mine who were, you know, had their PhD in whatever epidemiology, et cetera, et cetera. And and I just kept coming back to the drawing board going, this isn't what I'm really want. This isn't what I really want. And, I don't really remember how I thought I just really want stories. I don't really know how that little light came on in my mind, but once it did, I remembered that I had a, a friend who was the assistant director of the Columbia oral history archives. So I went to talk to her and she's like, Oh yeah, what a great idea. You could do oral histories of women who were victims of violence and had children and figure this out. And I'm like, really, I could do that. And so, um, I did. I, I ended up um, co- connecting myself with a bunch of women who were oral historians over at Hunter, uh, mm-hmm. who were working hard to uh, archive the uh, immigrant experience of Puerto Ricans in New York City, women in particular. And they took me under their wing and they uh, trained me in, you know, technique and theory and ethics of oral history and sort of launched me as an oral historian. And I ended up I, I resigned as Sanctuary's executive director because I felt that I couldn't really take this new risky sort of direction um, and run that organization. I felt like it was right. both going to be too time consuming and too risky for uh, for the the organization itself. Um, and I sort of like was out there with my butt hanging in the wind, you know, sort of <laughs> looking for money, looking for people who would listen and, and uh, ended up. Doing 45 interviews with women who were mothers and uh, were abused, and really created this incredible archive. And that's what launched Behind Closed Doors because I, un, I was their stories uncovered so many rich and nuanced and gray area, right? <laughs> you know, sort of um, needs and and unmet needs in the ways that. Um, We were addressing the issues that it um, resulted in a very rich and deep array of policy reform initiatives, which were articulated in Behind Closed Doors. In fact, each chapter of Behind Closed Doors starts with a, a piece of one of the women's stories. Um, and it then launches into the policy implications of that story and how things can change in, in, in this case, in New York City to uh, make the services and uh, systems that these women inter, interacted with more responsive and uh, helpful to their actual problem.
0: So, so I want I want to introduce actually another theme into the conversation here. Uh, and and ask you to continue telling the story but what you've said is just so powerful i think in terms of really understanding how when we're capable of absorbing a story how much we can learn from it about the world that that story suggests mm-hmm. and then it's almost like a different kind of knowledge I, I you and i have had this conversation offline before in other circumstances about i sort of see it like two there's these two different ways of knowing the world if you can put it this way mm-hmm. there's a bunch of people out there in the, wanna, in the who want to subject the world to a bunch of scientific experiments and yeah. like run tests on things yeah. and then you know isolate variables and ask in a very rigorous way does this does a affect b and becomes like this very very analytical and very dissociated kind of analysis and then there is this more synthetic kind of analysis which i like to think about as systems thinking which is so rooted in people telling stories and understanding holes understanding organic holes and and this powerful learning that emerges from all these stories and then i know that you have uh, another initiative that grows out of that. <clears throat> Part of this, though, also involves the idea of empathy and mm-hmm. how, uh, to me, empathy means really sort of seeing the world from somebody else's mm-hmm. perspective. And stories obviously let us let us do that. Um, so if you could comment on that, like yeah. how these stories impacted policy and where does empathy fit in yeah. thematically into that work? Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, you know, it, it really is true. I mean, this whole little struggle I had as to, you know, creating this survey and that I was going to do was really this copying to the world of expertise, you know, that there's this ability that I have as someone removed from the experience to um, get data and understand uh what really is real, (laughs) what's, what's truly true, (laughs) because of course I have, you know, whatever, a PhD and I've got this degree and I read and I um, am objective. I think that's, you know, a key sort of factor. And, you know, I don't have any problems with objectivity, but I think that um, what I began to really understand from listening to these women's stories in an organized way. You know, I'd been listening to women's stories. I felt like really everything I did was an effort to respond to that in a, in as good a way as I could. But this was a really concerted and focused way of, of looking at that. And they had very different ideas about what should and should and shouldn't be done to support them. They had really, Profound experiences of re-traumatization by uh, seeking help from some of the systems that we, you know, sort of knee-jerk say, "Well, call the police," you know, right? You know, like, yeah, okay, call the police, and you know, find yourself getting beaten right. up worse, or the cure
0: um, is worse than the disease. The cure
1: is worse than the disease, um, right. and you know, and again, this is complex, and you know, I don't mean this to sound as um, glib as it might sound, but most women who are abused don't really want their husbands arrested. That's not the solution that they leap to. They want their husbands to stop abusing them. And so offering the police as the carrot (laughs) for them is just, I mean, it just doesn't address their values. And it's something that therefore they avoid for the longest time because they see it as the, you know, it's what everyone is going to suggest that they do. So they don't even seek help because they know that the help that they're going to be offered is help that they don't want. Mm -hmm. And so when we think that that is the right solution because it's the just solution or it's the it's the sophisticated solution or it's the educated solution or it's the socially sanctioned solution it is not the solution that women that are experiencing the problem want and so therefore we are offering something that's completely unhelpful Um, and in my in my opinion that's one of the reasons why so many families suffer this problem for as long as they do because right. the the interventions that we offer which I like to say are the big three foster care shelter and arrest <laughs> are are three are solutions that are <clears throat> the last choice that people would want to make <clears throat> um, and therefore and and money god um, billions of dollars go into those three solutions supporting those three solutions to the to the absolute detriment of any other solutions that might be, you know, softer, more community based, more, um, you know, kind of less hardcore intervention, more about what the community will tolerate and the people that live in that community will tolerate. And so a lot of the solutions that um we've that that I've tried to develop and certainly were the heart of what connect was were ways of trying to work in communities in collaboration with people that live there to surface their ideas about what were some of the solutions to this problem what would they be willing to get involved with what would they be willing to send their sister neighbor mother to Um, and how do we begin to build that from the from the grassroots up, and I've ended up really seeing my role in particular at Connect as a way of being the megaphone or the translator. You know, how do you get, how do you help that voice get surfaced, but then how do you get people to listen to it? And that's kind of how Connect saw itself as the, as the megaphone for that voice and a way to bring resources from you know the foundations the policy makers the government agencies into conversation with that with that grassroots voice and then build something that was you know practical and and going to work and people could really
0: get behind I, yeah, I absolutely I absolutely can understand that. I think that we have only a few minutes left in this hour, but I would love to schedule another session because there's so much here that we haven't explored. And I think it's worth exploring. It's, it's one of the things that's wrong with the world, and it, it goes along with the sort of exactly what you've just described, like a system that actually does probably – commits a lot of unintended harm as it tries to, 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 to serve. And, and I think, you know, that uh, the effort to squeeze big and complex subjects into an hour also does harm. (laughs) (laughs) So we don't, we want to, we don't want to do this. is just chapter one, David. This this will be chapter one, but I do have, we do have a few minutes left. Mm -hmm. I'd like to do, I'd like to ask you, first of all, just to say a few words about how threshold Mm -hmm. collaborative relates to that work that you did at connect and how do you see that how do you see your mission connected growing out of what you had done before yeah well really the the key the things that were that surfaced for me as
1: being the most important values that connect was trying to um you know mobilize and and expand were the values of relational empathy, you know, building empathic relationships um, across lines, whatever those lines were. Um, I mean, in New York, you know, just name it.
0: Right. (laughs) The block
1: you live on, the ethnicity you have, when you immigrated to the country, you know, whatever, or the religion. Um, But that that was one of the key values that we were trying to to expand was this ability to create empathic relationships. Um, And then the other was this ability to kind of build a collaborative voice. You know, what do we want? So the first step is, well, the first step in a way is finding your own story, because I don't think you can really build empathy without some sort of truth telling and, um, and maybe, maybe even personal healing. You know, mm-hmm. I think you you can't be empathetic, for, genuinely empathetic with others unless you can empathize with yourself, you know, and really take care of yourself. Right. So I think that's, you know, one of the f- sort of fundamental issues and, and something that no one ever spends any time on and that we need to spend some time on is how do we take care of ourselves? How do we care for ourselves? Um, how do we form empathic relationships with others, even others who are different and understand that there are a lot of common values that we hold together? And then how do we build strategies that are going to sort of make empathy real in our community? Um, and the thing that I realized, although I still am very deeply committed to issues of family violence and ending that, I realized that the strategies and ideas that were most important to me were really strategies and ideas that could be used to try to address any social issue, any social challenge, any social injustice. And so Threshold has really been my effort to take the sort of core values of what I've been doing over the last 25 years of my life, and turn it into a um, a, a uh, some a transportable, you know, so that it's not just for Brooklyn or just for Bennington. You know, it's something that people can learn and people can adapt in their own way, um, and that can be used for. Any, I, I, I say any social issue, I haven't found one yet that it doesn't work for, but maybe there are, but that it's not just to solve family violence, it's really to, to build community and build relationships and then have the community identify the strategies from there. So we've been um, creating both community focused strategies that are more about towns, cities neighborhoods but also institutionally focused ones that might work in a in a group a group home for foster kids in a school um, in a prison in a hospital um, so that they're more focused on a a kind of a you know a setting of that nature um, to and and ways of building in these principles and values so that uh, they can be used for change
0: so this really this really represents a remarkable departure in strategy from the sort of typical way that people approach these problems which would be looking at one individual, one family, one incident and trying to diagnose and address that to really looking at a systemic approach yeah. to changing culture and changing helping people change within a culture. Am I am I reading yes. that right? Yes. Absolutely and, true. And so that is just Fascinating and something that deserves a whole nother hour of conversation. By way of a teaser to listeners, what I would like to do is just sort of say that what we would do in the next hour is talk more deeply about Threshold Collaborative, about the different ways in which you approach this mm-hmm. new way of doing things, and mm-hmm. particularly to really dive deep into this idea of empathy, how empathy relates to violence in families and communities, and and maybe even, I think it would be fascinating to talk about how some of what you learned from that Buddhist Tibetan culture mm. is being mm-hmm. all these years later embedded in this new way mm-hmm. of doing things. I wanted to close out. I I have this quote that I wanted to just get you to react to before we close off. This is a, a, a quote from Robert McKee, who you mm-hmm. may or not have heard of. He's a he's a professor of creating. Cre- A professor of creative writing at USC and he says uh, he says this he wrote a famous book about writing and he says day after day we seek an answer to the ageless question Aristotle posed in ethics how should a human being lead his life but the answer eludes us hiding behind a blur of racing hours as we struggle to fit our means to our dreams fuse idea with passion turn desire into reality We're swept along on a risk-ridden shuttle through time. As we pull back to grasp pattern and meaning, life, like a gestalt, does flips. First serious, then comic, static, frantic, meaningful, meaningless. Momentous world events are beyond our control, while personal events, despite all effort to keep our hands on the wheel, more often than not control us. Traditionally, humankind has sought the answer to Aristotle's question from the four wisdoms, philosophy, science, religion, art, taking insight from each to blot together a livable meaning. But today, who reads Hegel or Kant without an exam to pass? Science, once the great explicator, garbles life with complexity and perplexity. Religion, for many, has become an empty ritual that masks hypocrisy. As our faith in traditional ideology diminishes, we turn to the source we still believe in, the art of story. Mm -hmm. So I thought I might, uh, to me, uh, you've told a very powerful story here today. And um, uh, do you have any closing thoughts Mm -hmm. on how it is that stories somehow remain this source of wisdom that goes beyond the disciplines that we use to understand how to make change in the world? Well, that's
1: pretty great. I I need to read that one. That's a long one. I thought you were going to give me like 10 words, but it's like 100. Um, Well, you know, I think that stories are really create this kind of net or web that really connects us to one another, uh, that connects us to our past, that potentially gives us a sense of vision or direction that we are hoping to move in or trying to move in and that that sort of keeps us in a little bit of a, uh, you know, I mean this in a good way, in, in, in a bubble, you know, it, keeps, it, it right. keeps us in a fluid that is going to protect us a little bit, that keeps us able to withstand the bumps and grinds that happen um, that allow us to remember that not everything is terrible when things seem to be terrible. And that give us a sense of trajectory and kind of standing on the shoulders of our ancestors and being there for, you know, our children and for generations to come. So, I totally agree with that. I could go on a whole other riff about right. stories <laughs> and they, the um, some of the ethical issues around stories, which I think I've, I've struggled with in my more sort of intellectual moments about, you know, whose story do we get to hear? Right. 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 <laughs> whose story don't we hear? And uh, what about those stories of, you know, people that are really awful and wh- how, wh- where do they go you know what do we how do we interpret those um, where do they fit in the big sort of patchwork quilt of all of our stories um, yeah. so there's a lot to that but I think that that that's why I read novels uh, right. you know I'd much rather learn about the world through a story than um, you know a scientific treatise or a you know a, or a a, 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 an ethnographic study or a, or a research project, um, it it's rich, it's deep. It doesn't tell me what to think. It allows me to find meaning. And I think that's, to me, what's most important is that sense of freedom and openness that I can find the meaning in this if I'm given the opportunity. I don't need to be told. And none of us really need to be told. We just need to be kind of given the opportunity to reflect and, and think in a different way than we often are. Uh, allowed to. And, you know, one of the things I find really interesting, I don't know if you've ever uh, seen the Pew study that gets gets done every year or two on um, how lonely people feel.
0: Right, right.
1: <laughs> um, the loneliness survey. And it's interesting because the more social media becomes a part of everyone's life, the more lonely people
0: feel. Isn't that ironic? Feel. That's, that's, yeah. yeah we At are... least that's
1: been the trend so far, you know, um, who, may, who knows that may change as we really arrive with a generation who has grown up with this. As part of their way of relating to one another, you know, part of it might be that old folks like us are like, ah, screw texting, I want (laughs) to talk, you know, whatever. You know, it may be be a culture issue that that's going to change, but so far, uh, the more... More opportunities we have to connect through social media, the, le- the more alone we feel.
0: Alone, alone in a crowd. Yeah, well, alone in a crowd. This has been a terrific conversation, and I am really looking forward to the next one, which we will schedule very soon. And uh, so, with that, I'd like to just thank you so much for joining uh, us You're today, great. Lisa. You're
1: very good. You're very great. It- It was great. It was a great set of questions and it was interesting for myself to sort of think back about all those things.
0: Excellent. Well, we'll pick it up where we left off. Thank you so much. You're welcome, David. Yeah. Bye. On behalf of our producers and sponsors, Arch Street Press, Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our work, Visit us at archstreetpress.org. dot org.